0: Well, good morning, happy middle of August. I thought today we're moving to the end of a summer series in the Book of Acts. And it's tough to do the Book of Acts in a summer. You could, do, you could take the whole year to do the Book of Acts. And so in order to kind of make our way through the Book of Acts, which is an awesome story of the kind of early church and how stuff happened in the early church, it's, it's incredible. But in order to do that, you have to tackle really large blocks of the story, and we're going to do that again this morning with some apology. I want you to know that I thought the message today, we don't have a PowerPoint today, usually I have, if you're a guest today, thanks for coming, by the way. We usually have a PowerPoint on the screen that kind of goes through my points, and we don't have a PowerPoint this morning because on Friday afternoon, the message completely changed for me this week. I thought this week that it would be a great time and a good section of the book of Acts, because we're going to be talking about Acts chapter 18 through chapter 20, and I thought that we were going to be talking about Paul's, the Apostle Paul's, spiritual awesomeness, just his total, complete spiritual dudeness, especially his incredible faith and his incredible boldness, and I was thinking about it in exactly the wrong kind of way. I was thinking about it as if, and we can get into this habit, by the way, I was thinking about it as if there's some kind of capacity in the Apostle Paul, that he had this capacity this for spiritual awesomeness that you know we might call faith. And here's how I imagined that I was going to lay out this morning. I was going to start out by talking about Acts again, introduce it a little bit, especially for those of you who haven't been through much of the series with us this summer. It's an amazing story of the advancement of the church and the advancement of the message of Jesus and their amazing acts of faith and boldness, especially from the Apostle Paul. Wait do you hear about it today. we were going to be really excited. And then I was going to say this, and this is going to be provocative. I was going to say, that brings to mind a series of questions. I was going to say, why don't we experience God's power more palpably and more frequently. You are going to be there. You are going to be thinking, yeah. And, and why isn't there more victory in our lives? More spiritual oomph. And I was going to pause for dramatic effect. And then I was going to dive in a little bit. I was going to say, personally, why don't we pray with more effectiveness? And why don't our lives produce more spiritual goods? Because you read the book of Acts, man! And corporately, why does the church in America seem to be so ineffective? And let's get personal. Why does Gateway at times seem to be so ineffective? And we were going to be riveted because I was going to drive our attention to answering those questions. I imagine leading us toward answering these and ultimately leaving us with the inevitable feeling that we need to do more and do better. And I got knocked out on Friday afternoon. That's what I thought I was going to be talking about today. I thought that I was going to be surveying Paul's great faith and his incredible boldness and his spiritual awesomeness and his uh, his dudeness. If we could only be more like the Apostle Paul, if, if only Gateway could be led by somebody like the Apostle Paul, and if only he could lead a few more people who were like the Apostle Paul, man, we would be doing it up. I thought that was going to be the point of the day. You read Acts, and it seems like the church is constantly advancing. Times are good, and the church advances, and the movement grows, and amazing stuff happens, and then times get really tough. And the church advances, and the movement grows, and amazing stuff happens. And the lives of individual believers, well, they seem to go from one outstanding victory to another. They had intense trials for sure. But it never stopped them. It never slowed them down. And, and great faith and boldness, they just keep moving ahead. So what's wrong with us? That was going to be my introduction. This is what I thought I was going to preach about today. But something different happened on Friday afternoon. I got knocked out by an incredible observation. Maybe a couple, really. that just changed my perspective. I think I became a Christian again, which is good because I'm a pastor. It at least reminded me why I'm a Christian. Okay, we'll get to that. But first I want to survey chapters 18 through 20, and then I'll explain why I became a Christian again. And when I survey chapters 18 through 20, hang on, I, I kind of typed most of it out so we could go through this quickly because I, I want to get to the observation. So I gave you this this morning in lieu of a program. So what I encourage you to do is have this and your Bible. Acts chapter 18 through 20. If you've got a phone and you've got the Bible on it, go to Acts 18. If you've got the book, then open up to Acts chapter 18, and we're going to be looking at 18, 19, and 20. And this kind of covers, you know, Bible students think of the Apostle Paul, the way he's laid out and his story is laid out for us in the book of Acts. They think of the Apostle Paul kind of having three trips, three journeys, three missionary journeys where he just goes out through Asia Minor and then into Europe and ultimately Rome and he's starting churches and he's sharing the word and again, really incredible stuff happens. So today what we're looking at is the end of his second trip and and then it's the beginning of his third trip and I've really been praying for us today that we would experience God's presence. So can I ask you to do me a favor? Let's stand and let's kick this off with prayer. Father God, we are a people in need of a touch from you, every one of us. And we humbly acknowledge this morning that if you don't speak, not much will happen. Ask, Lord, that you would forgive me of my sin. And that my words would be your words for us. That you would speak directly and powerfully to our hearts. I pray this morning, Lord, that you would light a flame in us for the sake of the world. I pray this morning, King of Heaven, that you would come down. That your glory would reign in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Okay, so when we left Paul last week, Bill Russell preached for us last week, and when we left Paul last week, Paul was in Athens in chapter 17 of Acts. So if you notice on the second journey side of your map, the kind of upper left quadrant, you'll see Athens over in Achaia, It's, it's kind of left. So go over Aegean Sea. It's in what we today know of as Greece. And at the time, they knew of as Achaia. In chapter 18, Paul leaves Athens and he heads to Corinth. Now, the, the two cities that we're going to be talking about the most in this section of Acts were the two most important cities that Paul would visit during this whole period of his life. Corinth was the capital of the Roman province of Achaia. It was a communications and it was a trade center for this whole part of the world. Incidentally, it also had an international reputation for immorality. Paul ends up spending a year and a half in this city of Corinth, and that was roughly 50 to 51 A.D. So if you're keeping score at home, that's like 18 to 20 years after the death of Jesus. Paul is here in Corinth speaking the incredible story of Jesus, the message of Jesus. Early in his time in Corinth, he met these two people Priscilla and Aquila, they were tent makers just like Paul. That was their trade. And they were foreigners to Corinth just like Paul. So Paul and Priscilla and Aquila become fast friends. And Priscilla and Aquila, they were Christ-following Jews who had lived in Rome, but they had been kicked out of Rome during one of the religious purges of Emperor Claudius. Perhaps Paul and these two bonded so quickly and so intensely because they had so much in common. Now while in Corinth also, Paul is joined by his good friend Silas and his mentee Timothy. By the way, this is the same Timothy whom Paul will later write two letters that we have in the English Bible. This group of Christ followers preached boldly in the Corinthian synagogue during the early part of the Apostle Paul's time there, which again was Paul's habit. He would go to these new cities and he would set up a preaching post in the local synagogue. But when serious opposition arose, evidently, A part of the synagogue split away from the main synagogue group, by the way, including the synagogue leader. And they moved next door and opened a church right next door to the synagogue. You can imagine how galling that was to the synagogue population. But really, right there, think about the boldness of the Apostle Paul already. We're already getting just a hint, in my view, again, of his spiritual dudeness. I think it's fascinating That in this account, Luke remembers and mentions that during this period, Paul received an important life-giving word of encouragement from Jesus. And Jesus tells him this, and I'm going to read from Acts 18. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. And this ends up being a necessary word for Paul because opposition, as it often did, intensified. And Paul ends up needing this word of encouragement. Some of the local Jews drag him in front of the occasion proconsul and they accuse him of breaking the law by, quote, persuading people to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law. The proconsul, the head guy of the entire region, refuses to hear the case, fortunately for Paul. He rules that this is a minor religious matter and has nothing to do with civil law, so Paul is freed. After a year and a half in Corinth, he decided to return to Jerusalem and eventually to his home base, Antioch. And you can see the arrows on the map leading back toward Jerusalem. On the way, he goes through the port city of Centria, where Luke tells us that he shaves his head in response to a vow he made. Again, interesting that Luke remembers this and makes note of it. And again, what a spiritually awesome guy. He's always going for it with God. And most Bible scholars believe that this was a vow of thanks probably because he's just been delivered in Corinth and he says, you know, I'm going to go for it with God and I'm going to make this act of sacrifice. I'm going to shave my head. It just says a vow to You, Lord. So he does this. And it makes a profound impression on Luke as it would me. Maybe because Paul looked terrible with a shaved head. I don't know. On this return trip to Jerusalem, Paul makes a quick stop in Ephesus, and this is the second most important city that Paul would visit during this entire period of his life. Ephesus was also a major commercial center. However, at this point, he stayed in Ephesus a very short time, but he left behind his friends Aquila and Priscilla who had gone with him on this part of the journey. Presumably, he left them there to be the leaders of the young church that had formed in Ephesus. From Ephesus, he sails back to Antioch. He probably went through Jerusalem at that point, although Luke doesn't include that in his detail, but most of these maps do. Then he spent the last months of 52 A.D. and the first months of 53 A.D. in Antioch. So roughly a year he spends in Antioch. Incidentally, sometime during the late part of that journey or or during his stay in Antioch, he most likely wrote a letter to the churches in Galatia, which we have in our Bible. It's called Galatians. He also wrote a letter back to the church in Corinth, where he just spent a year and a half. But we don't have that letter. That letter is referred to in our first Corinthians, but we don't have the very first letter that he wrote to the church in Corinth. After a year of recuperation in Antioch, Paul strikes out on his third missionary journey. So we're going to keep rolling. Stay with me. He goes first to the churches of the Galatian region. Now turn on the back side to the third journey map. He goes first to the churches of the Galatian region to encourage them because they haven't seen him in a while. Remember, he was in Corinth for a year and a half. He's been in Antioch for a year. Now at this point in his account, in Luke's account, and this is at the end of chapter 18, Luke introduces us to a character named Apollos. Apollos forms a kind of parenthesis in Luke's account of Paul's journey. Apollos was a North African who was evidently very well educated and he was an eloquent and powerful communicator. He seems to have had a thorough knowledge of the Old Testament and he'd heard about Jesus and believed what he heard, but he was very raw and immature in his understanding. Fortunately, we might even say with air quotes if you're listening to this later, coincidentally, because we know there are no coincidences, Apollos ended up in Ephesus where he could both be used by God to persuade and to preach To the young church, but he could also be nurtured spiritually by Priscilla and Aquila, whom Paul had left behind, you remember. Meanwhile, back to Paul. So remember, Paul had left Antioch and headed to Galatia to encourage believers there. After a short while in Galatia, encouraging the believers, he headed for Ephesus again. And at about that same time, Apollos moved on from Ephesus to go to Corinth. So Paul comes to Ephesus, Apollos goes to Corinth. So Paul returns to Ephesus, and this time he ended up staying there for three years. During this time, he wrote the letters to the church in Corinth, which we call First and Second Corinthians in our Bible. And interestingly, in the Ephesus area, Luke recounts an incident when Paul ran into a group of people who seemed to have had some knowledge of Jesus, but they'd never received the Holy Spirit. This is really an interesting account. Luke calls them disciples. Some Bible students have speculated that they were really disciples of John the Baptist who had not heard the full account of Jesus and hadn't really become Christ followers. Paul prays for them to receive the Holy Spirit and they have this incredible encounter with God and with the Spirit and they end up speaking in tongues and end up having this dramatic emotional and spiritual experience. Once again, Paul is a faith-filled, bold, and spiritually awesome dude. I mean, he prays for people and they get knocked out by the Spirit. Furthermore, his time in Ephesus was evidently full of wild spiritual encounters. Luke gives a summary, and I'm going to read this quickly. This is chapter 19 of Acts, verses 11 and 12. Listen to this summary. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Again, spiritual awesomeness. I'm a ima- man you know, as I read this, I was imagining some of you know that old hat that I've been wearing since about eighteen thirty-nine. And there are pictures of me on Facebook in this hat. I'm imagining me getting that hat just especially sweaty and letting Rob run up and down the aisles, and all of you go, Oh, and you're healed, and your life goes better because my hat passes you by. I mean, this guy amazing, right? Okay, this activity becomes so prominent that certain Jews in Ephesus, trickery, jealousy, we don't know, they went around trying to perform spiritual tricks and displays of power using the name of Jesus even though they didn't believe in Jesus. They were using it kind of like hocus pocus. Listen to Luke's description of one of those encounters. This is one of the funniest sections of the book of Acts. And I'm going to be reading verses 15 and 16 of chapter 19. So these guys are going around. They're trying to perform miracles in Jesus' name. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and I know about Paul, but who are you? (laughs) Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating (laughs) that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. Obviously, as word about this kind of activity spread, Jesus' reputation was being amplified and the church was continuing to grow. What is going on over there? Let's go check it out. Luke gives a lot of attention to one of the final events that happened in Paul's stay in Ephesus. Some of the local merchants got upset by the preaching of these Christ followers and their message was one God. And this one God message seemed to have been having an impact on their business. Their business is centered around worship and sacrificing to the god Artemis. And from archaeological digs and research, we know that the the god of Artemis was a significant figure in ancient Ephesus. There was a gigantic temple to the god Artemis. So they brought a couple of Paul's disciples into the public square and they wanted them to be punished, perhaps killed. They essentially are trying to secure their own financial prospects. This caused a riot that seemed to have shut down the whole city. But wiser heads prevailed and ultimately the Christ followers were released since no formal crimes had been committed again. So after this, Paul thinks it's wise. He leaves Ephesus. He headed through Macedonia and then into Greece. And I have to read you the final incident in this part of Paul's journey when he's in Greece. I'm looking at chapter 20, verses 7 and following. Luke recounts this. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. Don't ever complain about Gateway. We're not finished. Hold on. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. You get the impression that Luke is getting a little frustrated. So Eutychus is in the window going to sleep. I'm thinking about some of you as I look out on Sunday morning. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man, and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate after talking until daybreak. <laughs> now, all night, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. This is epic dudeness. Incredible faith. He's fallen from a third-story window. He's dead. Paul runs down, lays on top of him, which you know is not really good medical advice, and starts to pray for him. And he comes back to life. Spiritual awesomeness, right? But it hit me Friday afternoon. That's not the story of these chapters. I started thinking of the gaps in the story. I don't know why, but I just started thinking of the gaps. The times where nothing happened. The ship. The trip from... Centuria to Jerusalem. Three years in Ephesus and we get a handful of incidences recounted for us. I thought of Paul's later confession in one of his letters that he was sometimes struggling with discouragement. And I realized that the book of Acts and these chapters in the book of Acts, this is not Paul's story. This is God's story. God sovereignly arranges circumstances, consistently putting the right people in the right places. Remember Priscilla and Aquila? They just happen to join Paul when he needs encouragement. They happen to be left in Ephesus, and it happens to be the place where Apollos shows up with a lot of gifts needing a lot of discipling. The exact right officials to release the Christ followers time and time again show up in exactly the right place with exactly the right kind of authority and are able to quiet the crowd. And he's done that here at Gateway over and over again. I don't have time to tell the stories. He's put the right people in the right place at exactly the right time. Rob and Evie Showers. Tim and Terry Eagle. Dean and Althea. Crystal and Dave, Jan, the right person at exactly the right time and exactly the right place, that's what God does. This is God's story, and Paul got to participate, and so do we. And Paul is certainly a spiritually awesome dude. But it's God's power that healed people. It's God's power that raised that young man from the dead. And it was God's anointing that fell on those new converts and created an intense spiritual experience and a connection with Him, with God. This is God's story. And we get to live in it. And we see God do that time and time again here at Gateway. Think of some of the baptism testimonies you've heard here. Think of the journeys of Eric and Renee Saunders and Tom and Becky Bellino. Think of the healing of Janie Dickinson. Think of my own healing. Think of the young people whose experiences here have laid the foundation for a desire to be in ministry, to do what Paul did. Think of the ones who are feeling that now. The book of Acts is not a chronicle of incredible stories of awesome people who are entirely unlike us. This is God's story and He's working still. Somebody say amen. Amen. Because it's still God's story. And when I realized that on Friday, I wanted to be a Christian again. This is the freeing part. This is the part that really, really made me want to be a Christian again. So can we learn anything from the Apostle Paul? And then a second thought hit me. Hang on. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. I realized, in a sense, it's kind of like it's really not that we need to do more. In a sense, it's that we need to do less. There needs to be less of us and less of our effort. So I started thinking about what are the really the key themes that we walk away from the life of the Apostle Paul with that are highlighted from this section really throughout the book of Acts? What are the key themes? Great faith? Yes, he had great faith. Spiritual awesome dudeness? Absolutely spiritual awesome dudeness. But that's not the key theme. I think the key themes that we take away from the Apostle Paul are three. Let's remember these. Number one, surrender. It's not spiritual awesomeness, but simple surrender to the spiritual awesomeness of God. At the end of chapter 20, Paul writes a letter back to the Ephesian church that he's left. He says this, and I'm reading from our verses 20 through 22. This is Paul's letter back to the Ephesian church. And now... Compelled by the Spirit, Paul says, because I'm surrendered. I'm just following. Something is moving me and I'm following. Compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's great grace. I quoted a couple of weeks ago that early letter that he wrote to that group of Christians in Galatia where he had established a couple of little churches. He writes them and he gives a little bit of his own testimony. And at the end of that section where he's telling his own story, he says to them, look, you want to know about me, you want to know bottom line, I, Apostle Paul, I, old Paul, I, Paul, who had his own self-salvation project, I, Paul, who had figured out that, the, you know, the way to be right with people and the way to be right with God was to work as hard as I could and be as good as I could, only I realized that didn't work. It wasn't working for me. And I know that many of you, Paul saying, have your own self-salvation projects. You're thinking the way to make it really happen for you and to have meaning and purpose and happiness is to make as much money as you can and have a great family and a white picket fence and provide for your family and have it all. It's all going to work out. If you just do exactly the right stuff and and you do better and work harder, it's all going to fall into place and it doesn't. None of us gets to be the people for whom it all falls into place. Paul says, if you want to know about me, I, that old Paul who had his own self-salvation project, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. and the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. I'm not a spiritually awesome dude. I'm just a guy who said, I quit. I surrender to you. And your spiritually awesome dude Have you surrendered lately? Because I'm telling you, this issue, I think, may be the issue for suburban Americans, especially those of us who live in northern Virginia. We have an addiction to control and self-reliance. And we have to constantly, daily take up surrender second thing i think we can learn from the apostle paul is spiritual grit you know if you really look at it the key to paul is not his spiritual awesomeness paul just refused to quit he just would not let go times got really tough and paul would not quit And times were really good, and Paul remembered and hung on and didn't quit. He writes a letter back later, back to the church in Philippi that Bill was telling us about last week. Listen to what he says to that group of Christians from Philippi. He's also done a little bit of this download, telling his own story and his own philosophy. And he basically says, look, all this stuff that I thought was great about me, I mean, I had an impressive resume, people. And all of that stuff that I thought was awesome about me, I now see that was nothing. The only thing that matters is the life I have in Christ. He sums that up by saying this. I'm in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 and following. Look, I don't claim to have obtained it all already yet. I'm not there. I haven't been made perfect. But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I don't consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do... Forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Remember that as well. Yes, you know, I thought about this. I thought about water skiing. It's kind of like water skiing. I mean, if you really think about it, all you do in water skiing is hang on. You don't create the buoyancy, the skis do that. You don't create the direction. You don't create the power. The boat does that. What you do is hang on. Now the analogy breaks down because when you fall, you need to let go. I know that because the first time I tried to learn how to water ski, I fell and I drank half of Lake Bowen outside of Spartanburg, South Carolina because I forgot to let go. I don't know how you can forget to let go, but I did. But in our spiritual lives, the tougher it gets, the harder you hang on. Hang on. God, things are really bad. I didn't get the promotion, or the finances are falling apart, or we're not getting along at all. I want to quit. No! You quit the effort, you hang on to Him. Spiritual grit. The third thing, you know, I think we take away from Paul, along with his overall general encouragement to do less. The third thing I think we take away from Paul is an eternal perspective. In that same letter at the end of chapter 20, he says this kind of cool thing. Listen to this. He's moving toward his summary here. And he says, I'm down now. I'm in chapter 20, and I'll start with verse 34. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, We must help the weak. Note this, this is a little thing, but we're going to make a deal out of it. Remembering. So I want you to be mindful of this. We're going to work hard. That enables us to help the the weak. Remembering as we do so. Remembering. Remember that. Remember the remembering. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus Himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So first of all, incredible principle It's more blessed to give than receive. It really is. That's Jesus' words. It is more blessed. It's a better life. It's a God-honoring life, and it's a life ultimately that will work more effectively for you if you are a person who gives than a person who is constantly trying to receive. But more than that, did you realize what Paul said there? Paul didn't just tell us that principle. Hey, it's more blessed to give than receive. So stop being so selfish. You know, give lots of your money to Gateway. That is what he's saying here by the way. That's in the fine print. But he's not just saying it's more blessed to give than receive. He's saying I remind myself that it's more blessed to give than to receive. Because that becomes motivation for me. Because I'm looking toward heaven. I'm I'm looking at eternal things. I'm looking beyond just my present trials. I'm remembering constantly because sometimes, I'll tell you, sometimes you people have been so hard to get along with, it's not always obvious that it's more <laughs> blessed to give than receive. So I have to remind myself. What a perspective. I've got to end with this. One of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. Paul is in the middle of this section where he's writing a letter to the church in Corinth. And this is his second letter. Oh, it's actually his third letter. Remember, we don't have the first one. But we call it 2 Corinthians. He's writing back to those Christians. And, you know, I remember one time when, kind of making the same point, honestly, I didn't think about that. I remember years ago when I was in seminary, so this was in the 1700s, I was a young man. And somebody, you know, some one young guy like me, we're seminarians we're getting a degree in being spiritually awesome dudes that's what we think we're doing anyway and some guy raises his hand corner of the room i have no idea what his question was you know you've been in these kind of conversations before it happens often in washington dc in political discussions they raise their hand with a question it's not a question at all I want to show how smart I am and it's an accusation or it's a let me make a great point and he says something elaborate about the early church and how awesome it was and oh if we could only be like the early church if only we could be spiritually awesome dudes like Paul he essentially makes that kind of a statement about the early church and this professor just went off what early church are you talking about are you talking about the Galatians who within months had been completely bewitched and forgotten what they believed and Paul had to write them and rebuke them. Or are you talking about the Corinthians, where Paul has to write him a letter and say, you got a guy living with his stepmother. Kick him out of the church. What are you doing? There was nothing spiritually awesome about these people, by the way. What they did is the same thing we do. They try to figure out how to surrender more and more to a spiritually awesome God. It's that simple. I'm sorry, eternal perspectives. He's writing this letter, the second letter to the Corinthians. And he's kind of in this section where he's talking about his own ministry, a little bit defending himself. Because they've gotten all bent around the axle about various things. And at the end of chapter 4, he's talking about how, you know, we're... This is incredible. We have this amazing message. I mean, it's amazing. God loves us and he showed it. He squeezed himself into human skin. And He showed us how much He loved us. Wow! And He's given us that message. And here's the thing, people, Paul's saying to the Corinthians, He doesn't wait until we're all straightened out for us to share that message with others. It's on-the-job training from day one. He wants you sharing as much as He's done in you with the people around you. He says, we have this ministry. We have this word in broken jars of clay. That's us. We're not spiritually awesome. We're just clay jars with cracks in them. And then he ends that section with this. Epic. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. He's already talked about times how he struggles with discouragement. We, but we do not lose heart. We hang on. We surrender and then we, we just grit. We don't lose heart. Though outwardly, we're wasting away very true Sorry for those of you who are in your early thirties, you're starting to feel like, you know, man, I'm old. Welcome to the rest of your life. (laughs) Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. We're like brand new every day. We wake up and, oh, new stuff, I'm stronger. Four, don't miss this. Please don't miss this. This is Paul speaking. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them. Light and momentary troubles? He was whipped within a, an inch of his life multiple times, he was shipwrecked in danger with it for his life many times. He says he was on the run from bandits, on the run from Gentiles, on the run from his own countrymen. Light and momentary troubles. And yet, in light of eternity, those troubles mean nothing. They disappear. Paul wasn't a spiritually awesome dude. Turns out he was like me. Turns out he was a guy who needed to surrender. Every day, wherever the Spirit compels me to go today, that's where I'm going to go. And it turns out that almost every day, he needed to exercise grit. He needed to hang on. Because he knew that he didn't determine direction, and he didn't determine propulsion. He wasn't even responsible for the buoyancy. But he did have to hang on. His life depended on it. He was in shark infested water and no matter what happened, he needed to hang on. And he also, he remembered constantly where he was headed. Let's pray. And just keep your head bowed and your eyes closed for just a second. Let's do something now. I saw somebody do this the other day and I think this would be a good exercise for us right now. So I don't know how in particular the Spirit has spoken to you today, but I believe God is here. And that means He has intended to do business. So before we leave, I want you to just focused on Him and what He's got for you. You know, we said there are three things that we learned from the Apostle Paul. Surrender. Surrender. I quit. I give my life up to you. And I ask you to make something of it because when I take it into my own hands, I make a mess of it. Spiritual grit. Somebody today needs to hang on. You feel like quitting. You may have quit. Well, grab hold again. He's right there. And somebody today is facing a tough time and needs to remember where we're headed. He's making something awesome out of you. Inwardly renewing you day by day. Here's what we're going to do in just a moment. You're going to stand for the one of these that God needs to speak most powerfully into your life. Maybe it's surrender. Maybe it's spiritual grit. Maybe it's eternal perspective and you're going to stand as an ass. This is so I'm not asking you to shave your head, so be thankful. This is you making a vow before him. I today I surrender. Today I hang on. I hang on. I got nothing else but I can do that. I can hang on to you. Or today I remember. Today I remember. I, I remember For a minute, let's just let this be you and Him. I want you to keep your eyes closed. If you need to stand up for surrender, would you stand? Father, I ask you in the name of Jesus that you would strengthen and equip these people to let go and quit. Give it up to you. We're yours. Those of you who need to stand for spiritual grit, would you stand? look, Lord, it's hard. It is really hard. It's hard not to get overwhelmed by worry and depression. Strengthen our hands so that we can hang on. Finally, those of you who need to stand for eternal perspective, would you stand? Everybody remain standing. Okay, so... Jesus today we remember (laughs) we remember that our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us a glory that far outweighs our troubles so we fix our eyes on you the author and perfecter of our faith Okay, thanks everybody for joining us you people are dangerous So remember that. Surrender, spiritual grit, eternal perspective. Hey, go in peace. Thanks for coming.